Welcome to episode number 38 of The Thermal. I'm your host, Harry Tenkate. In this episode of The Thermal, Crisis in the Air. We hear from a British pilot who kept his cool and saved himself and his glider. American pilot Roy Bourgeois knows how to escape the northern winters. He has just returned from his 27th gliding adventure in South Africa. He gives us the inside scoop. And there's a new app for analyzing IGC files, one that will help you figure out if you're a safe pilot and what you can do better. That's all on episode number 38 of The Thermal. So you're happily flying along and then something happens. Something out of the ordinary. Something that has the potential to destroy you and your glider. Martin Oliver flies his label out of Lasham in the UK. I've reached him at home in London. Hello, Martin. Thanks for coming on the show. Great. Thanks for having me. Now, set the scene for me. You're in your label. You're flying around Lasham. What yeah. happened? Yeah, it's interesting. So we um, we were flying a task. It was kind of a bit of a windy day. So there was three of us that were flying the same route. We uh, we got about halfway down the first leg, uh, sat in the thermal, was in front of the other two, sat in the thermal, and it was just, it was fairly straightforward. We I rolled level at the top of the thermal, um, and it, there was kind of a bit of a bang, a bit of a jolt, um, and I realized the right rudder pedal had gone straight to the floor, which wow. was a bit of a surprise. It's something, com yeah, completely out of the ordinary. <laughs> and you, and yeah. at what height are you at? I was lucky. I was quite high. I was about four, four and a half thousand feet, something like that. Okay, so that AGL. So there was a there was a decent amount of air beneath us. Right. So that gives you time to think things through and come up with what your plan is going to be, right? Yeah, exactly. And swear quite a bit as well, if I'm being yeah. completely honest. <laughs> yeah, but um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. fortunately, yeah, absolutely correct. So so that I was lucky it went quite high because, as, as you quite rightly say, it gave us a decent amount of thinking time because even in a full side slip, it's not coming down that quickly from that high. Right. So take me through what happened. What did you do? Yeah, so obviously it's gone bang. It took me a little bit of time, as you can imagine. You've got a bit of a surprise factor, and it kind of takes you a few kind of seconds to work out what's actually happened, what's going on. Um, obviously, quite quickly, you recognize you're in a side slip. Uh, I'm not putting any rudder input in, so there's only one reason that's happened. It's the rudder's jammed over in one direction. Um, so the immediate, the immediate first thought is, can I fix this? So, you know, you're kind of reaching around the pedals, you're trying to put your foot under it and lift it up. It wasn't a problem that was solvable. Mm -hmm. Um, ultimately what we found after we'd landed is, or after it had landed is the, uh, the cable had snapped. It had kind of gone back into the housing in a bit. Like there was no way sat in the cockpit. You were going to be able to fix that, but that's obviously the first thing you do. And the, and the um, reason that the rudder's over to one side is because in, mm. in many gliders, they're, they're sort of spring loaded right there's a spring that yeah. helps you move the pedals and so if the cable's gone on one side is that what forced it over yeah that's my understanding like and since it was like kind of the weight of one of the pedals and, and the fact it's still attached and all the bits it kind of pulled the rudder over to one side um there's people much more qualified who could tell you the technical mm. reason for it but the implication was one of the rudder cables snapped and then as a result it was flying sideways so it's it's not just having the, the rudder flop around no control it's, mm. it's jammed over to one side yeah and in a way that potentially talking about it might have made it easier to deal with because at least it was consistent like it was mm -hmm. yawed left and it wasn't doing anything different mm -hmm. like if it was kind of as you suggest bouncing around behind you that could have affected the kind of your ability to control the thing but yeah no so it's jammed over to one side and the aircraft's now flying sideways and to keep the aircraft level you're using 
opposite aileron, I guess. Yeah, essentially that. So, because obviously, uh, essentially a full rudder deflection, it's obviously trying to nose and dive down in that direction. So it was it was essentially full opposite aileron and a bit of back pressure on the stick. Mm-hmm. Um, it was once you got past the shock, the first thing we did was play around with the controls, work out, you know, and I had enough kind of pitch and roll. Because obviously your first question of a primary control failure is, do I need to get out of this? Mm-hmm. Um, and you're wearing so a shoot. Wearing a shoot, yeah, I could have got out of it. I would no issue, but we sat there and I went, okay, well I've got a roll. Obviously your roll rate is reduced because it's essentially it, it turns one way very well. It doesn't turn the other way quite so well. It takes a while to pick up the wing. It's like someone parks a car on the end of it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and we had a bit of pitch and we had a bit of roll, so we had enough to make me think, yeah, okay, I want to stick with this. I've got enough control that I can land this glider. Wow. Which yeah, it was fun. So so I sat there. I was lucky I got on the radio with the two. I think this really helped me out as well because I jumped on the radio to the two guys I was flying with and explained what went on and actually vocalizing it and, and explaining the intentions. That probably helped quite a lot because it gets you into that mode of, right, this is a problem. This is how we're going to fix it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And we tried tried to kind of then work the problem from there. And you're on the sort of farming countryside around Lasham, southwest of London there. Um, you're looking at your fields, your options. Yeah, I mean uh, th- that was where we got kind of a bit lucky and a bit unlucky. It was it was basically the worst time of year for this to happen because it was when the crops were at their highest. Mm-hmm. So actually, the number of landable fields was was for what you'd normally look at was probably a bit less than what you'd like. Um, mm-hmm. It's not like when you go in August and you can put it in anything. So, but then obviously you you know you've had a primary control surface failure. I wasn't really like if I had to put it in crop, I had to put it in crop, right? It was it was just get the thing down at this stage. Right. Luckily, as I say, had a little bit of time, so I was able to look out over the side. I found a field which, to be honest, would have been good regardless. Nice soft dirt field. It was uphill into wind, fantastic. So I was like, right, that's where I want to land. Looked around, there weren't any better options, or certainly none that I could easily see. The only problem we had is I was too close to it. I was essentially on top of the thing. Which again, normally not a problem. You just open the brakes, sit in a turn way to get down there and put it in a circuit if you needed to. Mm-hmm. Obviously, that's not not really kind of what's on the cards here. So I had to kind of mock out a circuit and, and really kind of eyeball and guess how far is this thing is going to go in a side slip from this height, which is kind of a bit of an unusual challenge. Yeah. I can yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> as you can imagine, most people know most glider pilots, you know how to side slip when you're coming down an approach, you know roughly the rate of descent. But when you do it high, you can't really visualize like this is where I'm gonna end up. Uh and I was also aware like the tricks you can normally use of oh, I don't like that angle, I'm gonna fly away a little bit further till it gets to a position I'm like. I'm like, well, you don't really have that tool available to you. So I was like, fine, okay pick the field and then it's kind of best guess so i was able to uh, almost mock out a bit of a circuit just because i was so close on top of it not because i was determined to fly a circuit um was able to get it round mainly doing kind of left-hand turns because it was turning that way fine and then getting it kind of lined up with the spot i wanted to touch it down on mm-hmm. um and speed, speed down, control is obviously straightforward because you've got elevator it's it's more yeah, directional exactly. control where you want to track down the the off field landing site yeah, 100%, right? Uh, speed control is an interesting one because obviously going sideways, it wipes out the ASI. Mm. So I had no idea what speed I was doing. Obviously, it's making a different noise as well, so you can't even judge it with your ears. Mm. Um, so I just kept what well, I think it worked out about 65 knots I had on when I looked at the GPS trace because I was like, right, let's just keep lots of speed on the airframe because, you know, the thought occurred. The, the, the moment for me, which was kind of inverted commas scariest, was I was like, right, we're coming down. I need to know what this pitch is going to look like because we're going to need some air brakes at some stage to stop this thing flying, even at full slip. You know, at some point, yeah. I'm probably going to have to open the brakes. 
when we were still quite high, I was like, I cracked the brakes. When I did that, the nose violently dropped. So I was like, slammed the brakes closed, went, right, okay, let's get that sorted. And that was a point where I was like, oh, if we spin this, we're definitely stuffed, right? Because I've got, like, what sure, spin recovery? Sure, you can't get out of the off? spin. Exactly. And I'm not going to be high enough to get out at that point. So I was like, okay, fine. Let's let's keep, I'm going to put too much speed, more speed, you know, label, you land at 50, 55 knots, whatever. So I was like, Martin, let's just keep let, let me interrupt that. for a sec. Was, as all of this is going on, is part of your brain freaking out or are you going, I've got to keep my shit together or this is going to go sideways? You know what's interesting is, and it's easy to say on the ground, is I was reasonably, I'd like to think reasonably calm throughout. I think having a couple of people on the radio really helped as well. And it mm-hmm. was, I, I was able to quite quickly get into a mindset of, listen, this is where you are. This is what you need to do. Now get it done. Okay. Um, Good for you. But it was, but then again, that's easy to say now. I'd hate to see what my heart rate looked like. Yeah. yeah. I think well. there probably was, there probably was quite a bit of, you get moments. It was weird because I had quite a lot of time to think about it as well. Normally, yeah. when you have an a, a emergency in an aircraft, you've got about you know x seconds to sort it out. I right. think this went on for like a, just under a minute, so it was it was longer than you think to kind of fix it and sort it out. But I was I was certainly being able to talk to people on the radio and go right, this is the plan. This is what we're going to do, X, Y, and Z, and almost talking about it out loud. I think really helped out. So put us back in the cockpit. You're on short final right now. Yeah, pick it up. So we're coming down. Um, obviously, problem is landing sideways at some point. I'm thinking, right, well, I, I need to get this aircraft pointing straight at touchdown, ideally. Otherwise, it's going to ground loop. We're going to take the tail off. If we can avoid that, great. If it happens, it happens. There's a genuine emergency. Obviously, if it's a choice between me and the tail, I'll take the tail. That can always be reattached. But I was like, right. So what I did was aimed at, I think it was the left-hand side of the, uh, the left-hand side of the kind of landing area. And as we're coming in, we get near just about probably 20 seconds from la- round out, maybe a bit, bit closer in, just put in full right stick, that brought the aircraft straight and essentially it's still kind of like yawing left. Mm-hmm. If you center, if you could center the rudder, it'd be pointing at kind of the right hand corner, but because it's yawing left, it's now pointing at where I want it to end up. Mm-hmm. And it was able to do that just as it touched down. Nice. Um, there was, there was two things that happened. Obviously we had only a small amount of break, like labels will land pretty well, but even in full side slip, it's pretty draggy. Um, I don't, I've, I've forgotten to do landing checks. Obviously, other things going on, so it was it was quite close in. I was like, "Oh yeah, undercarriage probably going to need that." So I very nearly wheeled up it, which again, based on what happened, wouldn't yeah. have been the end of the world. Yeah, yeah. nobody, but like, nobody's oh, going to yeah. give you hell for that if that were. But you yeah. got the, you got the gear down, <laughs> got the gear down. Um, which again was a big spike in the heart rate. But I was like, got the gear down. Luckily, it all kind of worked out. So I got got the aileron put on, and it was square for touchdown. I got very lucky. It was uphill in a soft field. Mm-hmm. As soon as the wheel hit the ground, I was like, right, full brakes, full back stick. Um, it was carrying more speed. I think the nose like touched in slightly as well, but again, it was soft dirt. So it got a lot of the speed off the airframe. It was mm-hmm. always going to kind of rotate round on the ground. Mm-hmm. So it was just like, can we get enough airspeed off this before it takes the tail off essentially? So and you and did. the aircraft are fine. Yes. Yeah. Everything was fine. Other than, other than one snapped cable, there was no other damage so to the aircraft. Why did this cable snap? Did, were you guys able to determine that? Yeah, interesting. There's and again, there's people more qualified. And Gordon McDonald did a piece in Cell Panel Gliding about it. As far as I'm working out, because I'm I'm quite tall, I'm about six foot, so I've got the pedals all the way forward in the lapel. Yeah. There's a the cable that connects it goes for I think it's like an S connector, and because the pedals are all the way forward, it comes out at quite an acute angle, mm-hmm. which just meant that over a thousand hours of flying, over time it just wore wore down. Essentially, it was just fatigue. Right. Um. And they were saying like, yeah, look, it's it, it's not something that would 
afraid. It's not something that should have been picked up on annual because even if you like kind of grabbed it and looked at it, I think unless you x-rayed it, it wouldn't really have come up. Again, there's people much more qualified to talk about right? this. It's just one but, of those um, things, as far right? As I'm aware, it's yeah. just... Yeah, that was hmm. it. Like the cable went. They've, I think, some like announcements have come out. I know emails have gone out to the Bell owners and things. Like, mm-hmm. I definitely recommend getting it checked if you've got one. Right. Because um, again, I got lucky. It went at four and a half thousand. If it had gone when you were turning finals into a marginal field, it could yeah. have been a lot harder to deal with. Any lessons learned? Anything that you can tell us, other pilots? What, what if we come across <laughs> something similar, or, or even just the whole? managing the stress managing the situation were there mm. any lessons learned you can pass on i, I honestly and i mentioned that a couple of times i know it might sound a bit sound a bit obvious but talking out loud like i was lucky i had a couple of guys on the radio but even if i didn't just speaking out loud yeah. and not having that internalizing yeah yeah exactly yeah it's a massive right this is a problem what am i going to do about it because you 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 get that shock part of your brain where you can't you end up in a world where your brain kind of freezes and you can't react you need to push past that and get into the uh, hang on, I'm a qualified, I can deal with this situation. I just need to get get the cognizant part of my brain engaged so we can actually go and deal with this. Yeah. So like I was on the radio having someone to chat to, like just, you, you know how to fly the aircraft, right? So it's just coming up with a plan of this is what we're going to do. This is the best route available to what I've got to get this thing down. Mm-hmm. Um, I know loads of people have got under stress. They've got breathing exercises, all that kind of stuff. I'm sure there's an awful lot of value there. But just in purely terms of getting over that immediate thing, just being able to vocalize and say, this is the issue. This is what we're going to do. Martin, um, that's great advice. Thank you very much for um, telling us about this incredible story. And uh, I'm glad it all worked out well. Yeah, no problem at all. And thanks very much for having me. All right. You take care. Cheers. Bye-bye. Thanks very much. Bye. Martin Oliver spoke to me from London, England. should have checked SkySight. I'm sure we've all heard from fellow pilots who've missed a great day because they didn't check the right weather app. SkySight has become the go-to weather application for glider pilots around the world. It's tailored specifically for glider pilots by crunching the last-minute weather data for up-to-date forecasts that can't be beat. If you're interested in trying out SkySight to maximize your cross-country flying, use the voucher promo code THERMAL in capital letters and you'll get a 14-day free trial. Roy Bouchois has a deep love of gliding. He's been flying gliders since 1973, longer than most of you listeners have been alive. Roy has also just returned from his 27th South African gliding adventure, a great way to get some flying in during the long northern winters. I've reached Roy at home in Phoenix, Arizona. Hello, Roy. Nice to chat with you again. And uh, good morning, and uh, uh, thanks for calling. Uh, I look forward to talking with you. Now, 50 years of gliding, that's a big congratulations. It's it's a huge milestone for you. Um, yeah, I guess using, using my, my actual anniversary will be in September, but if you use the OLC seasons, this is my 50th season, so... Um, it's and I hope to have another fifty, but I probably won't. Yeah. Well, it's always good to have a goal, right? Yeah. So, listen. Be, before we talk too much about your South African uh, gliding adventures, give, give me a bit more background. How did you first get into gliding? Um, it was the year nineteen seventy three, and I was working as a page in a library. And part of my job was to put back books back on the shelf. And, and one of the books I put back on the shelf was a book called Beginning Gliding. 
by Derek Piggott. <laughs> Piggott, yes. I knew Derek when and, I flew at Lasham. Yes, and I would later meet him and tell him the same story. Uh, and, and it had a picture of a lovely K-6 on the front, and I had made model airplanes as a, as a young boy, so I took the book home. And it sat around the house. And when I got to reading it, I was absolutely enthralled by the idea that you could fly gliders hundreds of kilometers on a planned course and come back without Mm -hmm. a motor. And it, it seemed to me at that time that that was as close to magic as you really get in this world. And and that magic that sense of magic has never left me in 50 years. Uh, even today, sometimes I'll get back from being, you know, 300 kilometers away or, or even farther, and I get back, and I just look back on, on that flight, and I say, wow, that was incredible. Yeah. That sense has never left me. And, and years later, when I met Derek Pigott at Lasham, I told him that story, and he laughed. And he said to me, Roy, the magic never ends. Uh, And that's such a true statement. I agree 100%. So that's how it started. And uh, but for me, it was um, it was always about flying cross country. It was not so much about flying or flying. I, I just I was I was fascinated by the idea of flying cross country. And if I can keep the glider in the air, uh, I'm going to go somewhere with it. So you started out on, I guess, 233s and then got into becoming a competition pilot from there? Uh, I'm embarrassed to tell you, I started out on a 222, <laughs> which, had, which had a COSIM pellet variometer. With a, uh, and, and, we all, and the 233 that I got to fly was brand new. Right. This was 1973. And I learned to fly in a little airport at North Conway, New Hampshire, in the New Hampshire mountains. And uh, um, that's it's that was 50 years ago. <laughs> well, congratulations! That's that that is a, a really um, wonderful thing to celebrate. Five decades in the air. Um, well, I, I hope to have a few more. Yeah. So, when did you become a competition pilot or a hardcore cross country pilot? Where did that was that also in that part of the world? Well, I I think I was always a hardcore um, cross-country pilot. It was always what I wanted to do. And uh, I joined the MIT club in, uh, I think, 1976-77 and immediately started flying their Schweizer 134s and uh, 126s cross country, and they had a good cross country program, and that was my beginning. Uh, I did my first 300 kilometer flight in a in a in a club 134. Nice. Um, competition would come later, and and competition is something that I've done off and on. In the beginning of my career, I was a bit of a lone eagle. I just wanted to go and fly by myself cross country. Uh, but later on, I started flying cross country, and I've done uh, probably about ten U.S. nationals and about five or six Canadian nationals hmm. in the past. So a few years back, right? Which is where we we met a few years back uh, at the Sosa Gliding Club in Ontario. Yeah, 
So, so how many hours have you accumulated over the the fifty years? What do you What does your logbook say now? Um, I think it's around six thousand sixty five hundred hours gliding. Wow! Uh, and and I once calculated that it's now close to about four hundred and fifty thousand kilometers cross country. <laughs> That's sweet. Now, the, the main yeah. reason I, I wanted to chat with you is because you've just come back from your 27th trip to South Africa, where you go flying during the, the Northern Hemisphere winter kind of thing. So that makes me jealous because I haven't seen a, a glider port for many months now. Talk to me a little bit about uh, the, the flying you do down there. I understand you just flew 10,000 kilometers on this latest trip. Yeah, I flew, I flew about uh, 130 hours on this last trip. I I own a half share in a glider, an ASG-29 in South Africa. It's actually the only ASG-29 in the country. Hmm. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I, in, in, I began going simply on two-week uh, vacations, and then, it's, then it stepped up to one-month vacations. Then it stepped up to, I uh, would go for several weeks, come home for Christmas, um, and then go back again for a second trip that year. But that was all when I lived in Boston. Uh, two things happened that changed it a little bit. Uh, one was COVID, where the coming home from South Africa uh, became a little bit of a hassle. You had to get a COVID test and uh, within so many hours of flying, et cetera. So I simply started just staying there over Christmas. My children are grown up, and um, so are my wife's children. So it it, um, it made sense to just stay there, and that's what I do now. The, the, the second thing that happened was I moved from Boston to Phoenix, and that adds another five hours to the trip. Right, that is a long trip. So, so I left. I left for um, South Africa on November 11. And I came back on January 17th. Nice, nice. And I can, I think your dog approves of your trips to South Africa? <laughs> That's Roxy. She, um, Roxy does not understand why there are other dogs in the world or why there are <laughs> other people sometimes. But she's, uh, um, she's my, my, my best friend. I'll close the door and we'll see if we can do a little better with That's her. That's all good. I love dogs. Um. So when you go down to South Africa, um, tell me a bit about the club. I mean, how do people like me, for example, who after the long you know, winters might want to go flying down there? How does it work? Well, the best place to start is to go to a website called SoaringSafaris.com. And that, that operation, which is where I fly, is run by Dick Bradley. Um, Dick Bradley was a, a, a well-known uh, personality in the international gliding scene. He was the steward at the Uvalde World Championships a few years ago. He won the FAI Lilienthal Award in 2019. And he operates what I would call uh, a high-performance glider camp. Mm -hmm. It's a place where you can go and rent a modern glider with, with modern equipment, and you're expected to fly it cross-country. We have crews available to come and get you uh, if you land out. And, um, you know, we, we have contest quality briefings 
uh, every morning. We go over yesterday's flights. <clears throat> and one of the things that's unique about it is that we always do assigned what, what's called racing tasks. Okay. And so you have multiple pilots flying the same task. And that gives you a chance the next day to look at how a different pilot flew the same task as you and may have flown it faster or more efficiently. Right. So you get to and learn. You, and you learn a, a tremendous amount. The the caliber of the people who go there is varied. And there may be relatively new pilots, you know, uh, yeah. uh, gold level. But but you may also fly with the national champion or or team members of several different countries while you're there. Right. Now, South Africa is a large country. Where in South Africa is this glider port that you go to? Well, um, the glider port is at New Tempe, which is a suburb of Bloemfontein. And Bloemfontein is almost exactly in the center uh, of the country. If you drill a line from Johannesburg to Cape Town, uh, Bloemfontein would be just about uh, halfway. Okay. Uh, it's a big city, a population about 600,000. So it's unique compared to the African sites in Namibia, for example, where they're very isolated and there's a clubhouse but not much to do. In Bloemfontein, you've got a full-size city with um, uh, shopping malls, chain restaurants, uh, first world health care, and uh, pretty much anything you would want. Mm -hmm. uh, and and that, that makes it, I think, unique uh, on almost all of the Southern Hemisphere gliding destinations. Now, the, the other thing I was going to ask you about, so the... the large city, Bloemfontein, but what about the actual countryside that you're flying over? Is it inhospitable? I imagine it is. You've got to be prepared for a land out and no retrieve for a day or something, right? Well, um, not if you go about it rationally. <laughs> um, so the, uh, the immediate countryside, it's high plateau, mm -hmm. about 4,500 feet above sea level. Uh, there are large areas. So did you of, say 4,500 feet? That's correct. Okay. 4,000 okay. feet above sea level. Yeah. And that remains pretty uniform over the entire area that we fly. There may be a couple of valley areas that are 38 or 3,900 feet, and there mm -hmm. might be a couple of um, uh, hills that, that would go a little bit higher, but generally about 4,500 feet. There are very large areas that are farmed, um, mostly corn, what they'd call mealies, uh, large cornfields. <clears throat> and the, the real issue, Henri, is the roads. Um, most of the roads in the rural part of that country are dirt washboard roads. And the difference between landing out near a paved road and landing, say, 40 kilometers down a dirt road can be the difference between a two-hour retrieve and a six-hour retrieve. Right, of course. Uh, I, I did a retrieve uh, because we all help each other when we're out there. I did a retrieve. Yeah, as one is expected uh, to do, yeah. Yeah, three nights before I left. 
And I was four hours driving on a dirt road very slowly because, you know, we've got the glider in a trailer and you just can't, you know, you just can't shake the glider of the trailer to death. So, but, but it's rare to have an overnight land out. Yes, it's happened. Um, I once landed out very far to the north, um, uh, probably 280, 290 kilometers away. And I didn't get back until 4 a.m. the <laughs> next day, but I got back. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, we, we haven't left anybody in the field too long. And and I gather it's relatively safe. So, you know, I always have visions of, of lions as I'm sitting in the you know cockpit with the canopy closed. Is, is that an issue? Um, sorry, but uh, sorry to disappoint you, but, uh, we don't have, we don't have lions and tigers, uh, <laughs> or elephants or anything like that. They, of course, there are game preserves up there and there are some, there are some places where, uh, you want to make sure you're on the correct side of the outside of the game fence. Right. But, um, the biggest hazards up there are going to be, um, Meerkat holes. Uh, meerkats is similar to what in America or in Canada we'd call prairie dogs. Yeah, yeah. And also huge ant hills that sometimes you can't see in the grass. Uh, and you see ant hills as as big as a as, as a fire hydrant, and um, they're they're as tough as cement. So that'll hurt so the glider. Yeah. Land out. We always try to land out on a cultivated field because we know it's not going to have those two hazards. Right. Right. Wow. Wow. So for for you, Roy, what makes it so spectacular to fly down there? Is it is it the countryside? Is it the the height that you get? Give me an idea of what it's like to be in the cockpit at I don't know, ten thousand feet over that part of South Africa. Well, first of all, we've got a we've got a height band there by regulation that, depending on where you are, either goes up to fourteen thousand five hundred feet or ten thousand above uh, the uh, the ground, mm-hmm. or nineteen thousand five hundred, which would be fifteen thousand feet above the ground. So, uh, and and the thermals do go that high wow. you know, in good days, good season. And so you've got a density altitude issue that gives you really high speeds. And um, by way of illustration, during good years, uh, I managed to set three United States speed records in South Africa. Hmm. Uh, and none of those are still there. You know, they've all got gobbled up by, by other gliders and better pilots. But um, I think the fastest speed I did there was was uh, 154 kph over a 750 km triangle. Nice. And and so that's you know I think that what that translates to about 104 miles an hour. And you know so you've got those conditions, and um, the there's also an issue of camaraderie, build friendships there. The same. I, I would say about 80 pilots cycled through there in a season, and probably 60% of them are return people. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes you'll have husband and wife, you know, couples that'll come out and fly. And there's a whole group in England that 
put their gliders into a container. They put six gliders into a container and at the end of their UK season, ship the gliders to South Africa. Oh, just like and the they, Namibia thing. Exactly. Except in except in Namibia is mostly self-launchers. They don't have a tow plane. Yeah. Whereas we have tow planes at Bloemfontein. So there are pure gliders that come in the container. In the so container. It's African Gliding Safaris. That's the name of the, the company to get in touch with if uh, somebody like me wants to go flying there. No, it's soaringsafaris.com. Soaringsafaris.com. Okay, well, that's uh, it's it's on my list to go start flying in some other places around the world, and I'll definitely have to put that on the list. Um, well, it, it it's it's a, it's a really great place to start because you know there aren't a lot of places where you have the complete package of a modern glider, uh, a trailer, a crew that's ready and willing to go and get you. Mm-hmm. And other pilots that are flying the same or similar tasks, wow. and, and a wide range of people who go there. Uh, this year, we had one fellow got his um, his diamond, his, his gold distance and diamond gold flight, mm-hmm. and we've had a couple of other people that flew um, 600, 700 kilometers. That sounds good to me. I, you know, I was flying up in Canada. I'm, I'm, I was very lucky to get a 500-kilometer flight in a Jantar at one point. So, you know, that's, I'm looking forward to flying in places where uh, the cloud base is 10,000 feet. So, yeah. Uh, it, it, it really is nice, um, although it does get cold. But the highest I was on any flight this season was 17,500 um, coming back from a place called Van der Kloof Dam, which is down to the south. Hmm. And it was uh, it was fascinating because of just the range you've got at that. You know, you're you're twelve thousand five hundred feet above the ground in a fifty to one glider. It's it's just really remarkable. That sounds sweet. Now Roy, before I let you go, you know, I keep thinking about your 50 years of gliding. You've got tons of memories, I'm sure. But is there is there one particular flight or a memory that sticks out in your in your mind from all these years of of uh, being airborne? Uh, <laughs> I I always say the answer is yes, but it'll surprise you. I, I remember flying a nationals once, where. Um, my son was crewing for me, and it was just an excruciatingly difficult day. Um, the first leg was blue and low cloud base. The second leg was blue and into the wind. Um, and I wound up flying it, and I was so focused uh, on trying to get that stupid flight done in about, it was about 275 kilometers. But I had the radio shut off. And then finally, I turned the radio on and called my son that I was five miles out. And he responded, awesome, Dad. <laughs> and I didn't understand what that meant. All I knew was I was just glad to have this flight done. It was so difficult. And, you know, there were 19, I learned later, there were 19 landouts that day. Um, but the focus on that flight, I'm just so relentlessly focusing on the difficulty of flying 
that distance, you know, in a height band below, you know, one kilometer. Yeah. That's the flight that I remember the most. Huh. That's a great story. So there are, there are others, but, but that's the one that comes back. Yeah. I think that's the day I was probably the most focused, which I think is one of the wonderful things about the sport. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you, you're completely engrossed in what you're doing when you're doing it. And, and nothing else exists except that flight, the clouds, the path, the air, the machine, and, and what you're trying to accomplish. Okay, now, and, you make uh, me, now you make me want to go flying. So, <laughs> yeah, well, it's uh, it's it's what I enjoy about yeah. it, that sense of complete focus. Roy, I'm I'm hoping that I'm going to bump into you in South Africa in the next couple of years, and maybe we'll be able to get a flight together or something. That would be great. Yeah, and I understand you've got a new machine in your in your future, and I wish you the best of luck with that. And uh, I hope our paths do cross soon. Roy, it's been a pleasure speaking to you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Arvid. Bye bye. Okay. Take care. Bye bye. Roy Bouchois spoke to me from Phoenix, Arizona. The Thermal Podcast is proud to support the Made in Canada automated task scoring platform, Proving Grounds. Developed by a team from the QNIM Gliding Club in Alberta, it's designed to safely turn novice glider pilots into true cross-country soaring pilots. And it really works. Proving Grounds has proven hugely successful and is now in use in Canada, Europe, the United States, and New Zealand. Check out episode number 15 of The Thermal, where I interviewed co-founder Patrick McMahon. For more information, go to their website, which is SoaringTasks.com. That's SoaringTasks.com. Now, I started gliding well before the advent of the tech revolution. It was purely an analog experience. Now gliders are on the cutting edge of high tech, and it's mostly the tech-savvy glider pilots who use their knowledge and skill to bring new approaches to what we do. Polish glider pilot Mateusz Zaczewski is a case in point. He has developed an application that scans IGC files for information that can help us avoid mid-air collisions. I've reached Mateusz at home in Bedgoszcz, Poland. Hello, Mateusz. Nice to speak to you. Hi. So talk to me about your application. How does it work and what is it supposed to do? So uh, I'm flying gliding uh, competitions since 2013. Uh, and I uh, I was on some events when we had uh, meter collisions. Right, uh, and I found that everyone thinks that I'm not a guy who's who's doing some dangerous maneuvers in the air. I'm flying safe, and everyone everyone thinks like that. But uh, at the end, we have some uh, we have some incidents, sometimes really very serious ones. And um, I decided to write an application which will verify uh, that how how safe we are flying. And that was my motivation to, to, to write this software. So then the idea is that pilots like me who try and mm-hmm. fly safely can look at the IGC file and, and we can try and figure out what we're doing wrong. Is that the idea? Yes, exactly. So my, uh, the idea was to just, you know, uh, uh, provide a tool which will allow pilots 
to really um, to really uh, understand uh, how they are uh, how they are flying, right. basically. But does <laughs> so, it have to? Because, does your yep. IGC file have to interact with other IGC files, or is it just talk about your own flying? Because you need to have those meeting points if you're worried about mid-air collisions, right? Of course. This application uh, basically analyzes all the IGC files from the from a given uh, race day. Okay. Um, and and based on that, it, it detects dangerous interactions between uh, gliders. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Uh, for now, it's able to detect. It has two scanners. The first one is very basic but very useful. It's a proximity scanner, so we can define, uh, let's say, safety box around the glider, mm-hmm. and uh, um, whenever whenever the, uh, someone is too close to us, it will report an event. And the second scanner. Uh, is looking for dangerous thermaling, especially thermaling wrong way. Uh, quite often, we can see on uh, gliding competitions, especially during blue days, that some gliders are uh, circling in wrong, di- wrong direction. Mm-hmm. So uh, it detects such situations, and uh, at the end, uh, we have a full report uh, with a list of all events. So, do you anticipate this being used by gliding contests so that that potentially you know, points can be taken away from somebody if they're doing something wrong. In other words, it's almost like a a, a policeman uh, of the skies. You'll be able to police flights afterwards, right? Uh, Right, but my intention was just to provide a tool which will allow pilots to, to, you know, to to analyze their their, their flights. Mm -hmm. So, um, of course, it can be used on the gliding competition. Uh, and uh, but but this application is not smart enough to tell who caused a given event. Mm-hmm. So it, it it can show us that gliders were too close or or they were circling in different directions, but it's not intended to determine who caused this event. So it's like it's not like a policeman. It's like a tool for 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 a judge who will decide uh, who caused the whole situation and, you know, just talk to the pilots or maybe mm-hmm. give some penalty points if, they, right. if, if this would be the... the but the, but yeah. the bottom line with you is to make gliding safer. That's that's the reason you've developed this, right? Right. Okay. Now, what stage are you at with the app itself? Is it now freely available or is it still in the testing phase? Where Where is it at? It's freely available for 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 every single person, mm-hmm. for every single pilot. Uh, it's it's not for free for 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 competition organizers. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is a there is a small amount uh, per uh, per uh, glider per task. Mm-hmm. Uh, at this moment, it's just a half of a dollar. Okay. Um, so. Um, uh, yeah, it, it, this this I I hope that that thanks to the small don- donations I will be able to, you know, pr- set up proper website, uh, buy uh, certificates required to distribute this application freely without any warning from antivirus software, etc. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's like a it's like a 
hobby project on my free time. I know how that goes. It's just like my podcast. I, I should try and figure out, you know, a couple of cents per listen so that it, I can at least recover my costs. But uh, that's, uh, yeah, we, we do this not because we're interested in making money. Exactly. Okay. And have you had any feedback yet? Of are, are people using it? What's the reaction been? Uh, yeah, so uh, I have quite positive feedback. Uh, people are testing this application right now uh, based on um, um, past competitions. Uh, some of them are testing with, with Condor uh, soaring simulator competitions. Oh, yeah, okay. So yeah, it's, it's, it's quite fun at this moment. Uh, we've also done some testing um, during Polish, um, Polish competitions uh, last year and uh, two years ago. Uh, two years ago, it was very, very early alpha version. Um, yeah, but we've learned a lot about how it should work and um, uh, how, 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 what's basically needed for 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 pilots. Right. Um, so based on these experiences, I, I I released the final version. Let's say final, maybe not final. Yeah, first you're all, it's always going to be getting tweaked. Yeah, yeah. first stable version. Uh, uh, like a month ago. Okay. Now, do you do this for a living? Is this what you do professionally? Uh, I'm a software engineer. Okay. I have 17 years of experience, um, but actually this is my very first Windows application. <laughs> I was developing applications for, for, for telecom industry, for, you know, uh, telecom network yeah, yeah. servers, uh, backend stuff. And for last... 10 or 11 years, I'm developing mobile applications for iOS. Yeah, okay, cool. So t tell me a bit about your own gliding. Where, where do you fly and uh, what do you fly? So I'm flying in Bydgoszcz. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a mid-sized city in Poland, in, in central Poland. Um, actually, it's a city with a lot of gliding history. Um, uh, between first and second world war, mm -hmm. there was a very very large gliding school in my hometown. Okay, it was training like two two hundred and fifty people per year, so it was really massive. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, uh, I've started flying um, in two thousand and seven. Okay. Uh, my basic training was on SZD, Bocian. Bocian, yeah, yeah. They're, they're old yeah. but reliable. SZD9. Yes, very, very good glider for, for basic training. Mm -hmm. um, then, I, then I moved to um, SZD30 Pirat. Mm -hmm. And then to... Uh, uh, as a D51 uh, uh, junior, and then um, I've, uh, I've uh, at that point I had my uh, uh, mm, first diamond good for uh, you to my badge, uh, 300 kilometers on Pirat. Uh, and um, that was a criteria in my club to switch to uh, Yantar, okay? Um, so yeah. So Good then I you. started to fly Yantar. After that, I, I bought my first glider, which was ASW-19. So you, you've been seriously um, bitten by the gliding bug. Your, your, your bank account reflects that. 
Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> and I'm starting to fly in gliding competitions. Um, after a few years, I decided to upgrade to something something newer, something which can fly with water. Mm-hmm. And I bought SZD-55. And I remember one of the competitions during which we had two meter collisions in a single task. Ouch. It was a blue day. Did they survive? Yeah. No no one was hurt, actually. No one was hurt. But that was like a trigger for me to to write the software. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Two meter collisions and nobody was was injured. That's amazing. Mm Mm-hmm. One glider was quite seriously uh, damaged, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, still was able to land in a field. Hmm. Wow. So it's winter where you are right now. I imagine you're looking forward to the gliding season that's coming up. Mm-hmm. That's correct. <laughs> I'm preparing my Ventus. <laughs> that's that's that, that's my current glider, Ventus 2BX. Nice. Good for you. Good for you. Well, I... Thank you for the work you've been doing on these uh, on on the software project. It sounds like it's going to hopefully make uh, the, the gliding a little bit safer for all of us at some point. So happy and safe gliding, and thank you for the work you've done. You're welcome. Bye bye. Bye bye. Mateusz Zaczewski spoke to me from Bedgoszcz, Poland. If you want to find out about this app firsthand, you can find it at www.squadron ng.com that's www.squadronnovembergolf.com that's it for episode number 38 of the thermal i will be back again early march with another show thanks for all of the positive feedback please tell your pals about the show and don't forget to get them to subscribe if you have any good interview ideas, please let me know. I can be reached at the thermal podcast, all one word at gmail.com. That's the thermal podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for centering the thermal. See you the next time. I'm Harry Tenkate. Fly safe. <laughs>